Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Cybersecurity and supply chain risk management, two top priorities across government. Air Force officials have been looking for ways to solve both challenges, and they turned to the nonprofit RAND Corporation for ideas. RAND found that cyber risks are in a class by themselves compared to other supply chain risks. And for more of what researchers found, Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis spoke with RAND senior economist Victoria Greenfield. AFRL, the Air Force Research Lab, requested the work from us, and they were looking for us to consider two related issues. First, how did cyber risks differ from other sources of risk to their supply chains, and in particular, their defense industrial supply chains? So not specifically supply chains for software or for IT products, but more broadly for defense industrial products. And so looking at what does the risk really mean? What is this really about? Is it different? Is it worse? And we can come back to the answers to those questions uh, later. And then if it is different, if it is worse, if there's something unique about this, what should we be doing about it? What are the implications? Or can you at least give us directions to think about both for how we would manage the risks or how we would look to industry to manage the risks and what kind of research we should be doing? to support that because they are, after all, the Air Force Research Lab. They're very interested in research implications as well. What are those risks you were evaluating cyber risks against? What were you comparing it to? We did some comparisons just against very conventional hazards, things that I'm going to use an acronym, SCRIM, Supply Chain Risk Management. It's just a mouthful to keep saying all the words. So some of the very conventional hazards that SCRIM tends to address, natural hazards, things like weather-related incidents, fire, earthquake, uh, and also given the environment around us, we also thought more about the what was then the current pandemic and health-related risks. But things that could disrupt a supply chain, not necessarily intentionally, but just as a consequence of, of things happening in the world. We did also think about comparatively what we call, I guess, kinetic risk, where actual humans are going in and doing things and physically manipulating things. And so we, we thought about that comparison as well. And then, again, looking at not just risks to the flow of information. So oftentimes when people use the phrase cyber scrim, not always, but often they're thinking about either risks to IT products, supply chains for IT products, or they're thinking about information risks specifically, risks of exploitation. So infiltrating a supply chain and perhaps inserting some malicious code and affecting the products. And we were concerned about that. It's not that we weren't. And then also risks of exploitation in terms of exfiltration. So pulling information out of a supply chain to perhaps better understand the nature of the product to maybe duplicate it in some other environment or to find a way to dampen its effect. And so you have the infiltration concern, the exfiltration concern. And we were very concerned about those things, but we were also very concerned about the more ordinary thought of disruption to the supply chain. So, for example, the NotPetya attack in 2017 that hit Maersk shipping, that kind of took out the shipping line, halted their activities. 
what happens when the supply chain itself cannot function? What happens when the the threat is to the functionality of the supply chain so that product cannot move? So not strictly the informational concerns, not strictly about product corruption or exfiltration, but also about the chain itself, when the chain itself is the target. So one of the findings is that cyber risks to defense industrial supply chains are significantly worse than other concerns. The second one is that prevention is not enough. What are some other key findings? I think one of the most important findings is the one that's embedded in the title of the report, that you cannot think about cybersecurity and scrim separately and simply add them together in an amalgam and get what you're looking for. Because some way, there are some ways in which the conventional means of dealing with either separately, if you pull them together, will really be at odds with each other. There are trade-offs and that you really need to understand what those trade-offs look like. So, for example, in conventional scrim, you would think about redundancy, for example. You would think, all right, I'm going to make my supply chain less risky by adding more potential suppliers, bringing more businesses in, expanding my Rolodex, interoperability. You might think of many different ways to insert some redundancy through increasing your community. Okay, well, what does that do from a cyber perspective? Well, from a cyber perspective, you have potentially increased the points of attack. You've opened up new back doors because you've brought more members into the community who will have vulnerabilities and potentially, importantly, potentially shared vulnerabilities. And so you may, from a cyber perspective, be making things riskier. But then from a cyber perspective, if you say, okay, we're going to lock you in to a single supplier that you know is, is rock solid. Well, what does that do from a scrum perspective? Well, if anything goes wrong with that supplier, you've got a Rolodex of one. What do you do now? You have lost agility. You've lost your ability to maneuver. And so so there are trades here. And you have to make the policy decision kind of cognizant of those trade-offs as much as po- at least in so much as possible. I mean, now we get into challenges of risk assessment, for example. Do we really know what our risks really are? Well, when you have high stakes, low probability events, these things are very hard to figure out. And so risk assessment is somewhat nascent. So can you get it exactly right? No. But you can be aware of and incorporate it into your guidance, um, sort of thinking about how am I going to balance this? And it may differ considerably from one circumstance to the next, how you want to weigh these things. Now, even if you had no trade-offs, you might still run into trouble if you just tried to take cyber and take scrim and add them together and say, oh, okay, we've got both now, we're fine, in so much as conventional scrim might underestimate the risk. There might be a lack of understanding of the the extent of the risk of the cyber as compared to the more conventional risk. This is not to say that uh, the scrim community doesn't think about these things. I want to be very clear about that. They absolutely do. But when we look at policy, we often see policy written that thinks either focuses on the scrim or focuses on the cyber, but isn't necessarily thinking about it as holistically as it might need to. And one of the key findings is also that private sector is not able to meet national security needs or might not be able to, might not be able to, to meet to. might not be able to meet national cybersecurity needs. Could you elaborate on that one? In the different approaches we took, we kept finding evidence that the private sector may not invest in security sufficiently 
to meet defense needs in part because their incentives just differ. You know, industry is trying to accomplish something. National security is trying to accomplish something. There is considerable overlap in the two domains, but they're not doing precisely the same things. And so given these differences in incentives, it's not completely shocking that one might not do exactly as the other needs in in the amount. But we also saw reasons not just having to do with those differences, but just in how, so more theoretically oriented, how attackers and defenders can relate to each other in a business environment and some of the decisions that defenders, that would be the business that's trying to fend off the cyber attack, how they might react to a threat or respond to a threat and what might happen when the, the attacker is very strategic in their behavior and that it could lead to some amount of underinvestment. The other issue that came into play was the extent to which cyber insurance might be able to fill some of the need. And that's a much longer story. But I think the bottom line is, is probably not there yet. And even if it were, there's no reason to be absolutely certain, unless it's written in as a contract provision, that even if the insurance is exactly what it ought to be, that the business will put the national security priority first when it starts up again. You know, if, if a business has multiple customers, they need to prioritize their customers and you need to sort of have it in writing somehow that they're going to prioritize you if you want to be the priority. And that's not going to be costless. There were a lot of different issues that kind of pushed in this general direction. But the idea of underinvestment seemed to come up over and over again from each of the different economic and non-economic approaches that we took to thinking about this. Dr. Victoria Greenfield, senior economist at the RAND Corporation, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, Chief People Officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.